podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Boom, we're on. And today's guest, we've got George Bambi. How are you, Georgie? I'm all right, James. Thanks for having us on, mate. Yeah, thanks for coming on. You've got a fascinating story. Worked in a paparazzi. A lot of, uncovered a lot of tales. But recently, you've just discovered that the most punished prisoner in the UK, Charlie Bronson, is your father. Yeah, that's right. Found out that uh, three or four years ago. And um, yeah, we've sort of formed a relationship, got, got, got to know each other and... Uh, I visit him quite regularly and uh, we speak to each other on the phone every day and sorted him out a brand new legal team, got rid of all the dickheads that were surrounding him and making him look a complete idiot in the media and all the rest of it and um, yeah, things are moving forward and looking very positive for his release. For the first time in many years. Yeah, yeah, 46 years he's been inside. There was um, There was a specialist... Um, legal team that got Harry Roberts out. Do you remember Harry Roberts? No. He, he was the one that killed three police officers. Killed ple- three coppers in the 60s. And he was told he would never, ever see the light of day, never get out of prison, which is understandable, killing three coppers. And um, this certain legal team got him out. And I've been trawling the UK for the last few years and managed to get hold of this top legal guy and literally got on my hands and knees in his offices and begged him to take Charlie on. And uh, he kept turning it down, turning it down. And then I just said, listen, I'm not fucking leaving you alone until you take him on. And that's it. And then in the end, they did. And now the progress that's been made legally has been amazing. I mean, we've done more in the last 18 months than has been done in the last 40 odd years. And I don't know whether people know about this, but the parole system... Basically, if someone's getting a parole, they send three people into the prison. They sit there on a little board, they walk you in, give you a cup of water and sit there and go, have you been a good boy? Read all these bullshit reports and all this bollocks. Get people coming in, talking about them and all the rest of it. They go out, this is in the prison, and then the three people go in the back, have a cup of tea and a biscuit and go, should we let him out or not? Stamp a thing, come back. And Charlie keeps getting denied his parole. And one of the reasons we believe this has been happening is because he's battered that many screws over the years. Obviously, people are interconnected. And, you know, he might have battered someone 20 years ago that now working in the um, you know Ministry of Justice that's worked some way up the chain and all the rest of it. And these things coming from above that are always putting the kibosh on on any progression that he's done. So what we've done, we've set a legal precedent and we did this judicial review and a legal challenge to try and get Charlie's next parole hearing heard in a public court. Because our argument was, if a group of 12 people and a jury are good enough to send him to prison for 20 years, then surely a group of twenty people, uh, 12 people and a judge are good enough to decide whether he should be let out again. And also, being in a public forum, in a courtroom, it keeps everything really transparent and everyone can see what's going on. All the reports are all done properly. There's witnesses, there's members of the press there. You know, people can talk about every single aspect of, of his behaviour and what he's been doing. And hopefully, he'll have more chance, of, more chance of getting out. How many times has he been knocked back for parole? Oh, every time. 
never ever been paroled. Every two years, it's like, right, fuck off back to your bedroom for two years, you're not coming out. How's his mental health just now? Well, this is one thing that I've been um, working through with him for the last few years. We, we talk about lots of different things um, to do with his mental health. And we believe that, I mean, he'd been in Broadmoor, you know, it, it was sectioned. It was told that he was insane, which is a load of bollocks. He's not insane at all. He's one of the cleverest blokes you'll ever meet. And his mental health, what happens is, 20 years ago, if you're in a prison cell and you're locked in, and you're locked in for like three months and you don't see anyone, they're putting your food under a, a hole in, the, in, in the, the gate, do you know what I mean? You don't have any interaction with anyone. What was happening was, they were coming in and just for him to kick the shit out of a couple of guards was an excuse for him to get a bit of attention and get a bit of something to do. Do you know what I mean? Can you imagine the boredom? So he'd come out, he'd, he'd have a rumble with 12 guards, he'd you know, have a proper scribe, get back in his cell and be like, yes, brilliant, I've had something exciting in my life. But then what had happened is, them guards would go out and in them days, they'd have a bar down the end of the road like the prison officer's mess. So they go and get pissed at dinner time, have a few jars or whatever, come back to the landing and think, oh, fuck it, let's go and give Charlie a good idea. And they'd open his door and steam in with bats and all sorts and batter the shit out of him. And they were doing that all the time. And that's what made him so violent and so hard because all he was doing was just fighting back all the time. Um, I mean, if you're there and 12 people come in and kick the shit out of you every other day for the next three months, after a bit, it's going to become second nature to you, isn't it? So they actually created their own monster, if you like. So he become very anti-authority. Yeah, of course he did. Every yeah. time that cell door opened, he just wanted to yeah. right, it's them, me against them. And he'd, mm -hmm. he'd be in. We'll touch on a lot of stories because I know you you speak to your dad three times a day sometimes, and um, you've become very close with him. You're fighting to get him out, but I always go back to the start of my guest to get a better understanding of you, George, and what you've been through in your life. And tell me where it all started for you. Well, I had a bit of a bit of a messed up life, to be honest. Um, I was brought up in care. Um, my mum was an alcoholic. Uh, I didn't know who my dad was, and I was brought up by my stepdad. And, um, yeah, had a bit of a shit time. Um, getting battered all the time, locked in my room all the time. You know, made to eat dog meat sandwiches, locked in my bedroom to shit on the bedroom floor and all this sort of stuff. Shot with a little pellet gun all the time. Um, and they did a film about me, actually, called Stepdad. Um, which you can watch, like Ricky Tomlinson's in it, it's quite a few famous people in it. And I was one of the first people in the UK to prosecute my own mum and stepdad. So, um, yeah, so I grew up in care. I went into care when I was about six the first time. And, uh, yeah, I just grew up with a load of kids and all that. Had yeah. a bit of a laugh. How was your schooling and stuff? Did you go to school, George, or was it in um, care all the time? Well, I was in care all the time. I did I did quite well. I went to 13 different schools before I was 11. So I was quite disrupted all the time. Um, but the thing is, when I was locked in my bedroom all the time as a kid, I had fuck all to do. I didn't have any toys, didn't have anything like that. When it was Christmas, any presents I got, my mum used to sell them, you know what I mean? So 
when I was at school, I used to nick loads of books from school, maths books and English books and all this, science books, and I'd take them home. And when I got locked in my bedroom, I'd read all these books all the time. So I did really well. I passed my maths O-level when I was 11 years old, which I was really pleased about. And uh, I remember Mr Roberts, the maths teacher, come round and knocked on the door. And my mum answered the door and he said, hello, I'm Mr Roberts from the school, blah, blah, blah. Um, I wanted to come around and have a chat with you about George taking his 11 plus. And this was the first year of secondary school. He said, um, we think he's got a good chance of passing it. And she went, do what the fuck you want, I'm not fucking bothered. Slammed the door and that was it. So I didn't really know what was going on. So I went back to school. Anyway, I was in this hall doing this exam. And I was 11 and all the other kids were like 16. And they're all like, what's he doing here? And uh, so I did this exam, and that was it. I didn't think anything of it. It was all done or whatever. And then we had assembly a few months later, and they were... Um, do you remember at school, you, you have the first years, then the second years, third years, fourth, yeah. fifth years, all in a layer or whatever. And they were giving all these results out. So the fifth-year um, fifth year students who were like, right, and, uh, da, 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 and then they'd all come forward onto the stage, shake hands with the headmaster, all this bollocks. And then they went... And we've got a, um, we've got somebody that's um, that we want to bring up on the stage um, that's not in year five. He's actually in year one, and he's passed um, his maths O level. And uh, we're inviting, and they called my name out, and I was like, "Fucking hell!" <laughs> mm-hmm. And I went up on the stage, and I got my maths O level when I was eleven. That's the only exam I ever took. It's the only exam I've ever had. So you're quite well educated when you put your mind to it. Yeah, sort of sort of forced into it and enjoyed it. It was the only enjoyment I had, really. How was it uh, in your teenage years coming from a bit of turmoil in your past? Did uh, you I, I had a bit of a nightmare when I was 12 um, because um, I got blown up on one of them electric pylons. And uh, I was out with my cousin David and uh, we were messing about and, um, and we thought it would be a good idea to climb up this electric pylon. So we did, and I got all these like sixty eight percent burns on my body, and um, yeah, I just climbed up this pylon and it threw me off it, and uh, I ended up in hospital for two years in a place called Booth All Children's Hospital, <clears throat> and uh, I've had over one hundred and eighty operations because um, when you get burned as you grow, your skin doesn't grow, so you have, you have to keep releasing it, releasing it, releasing it, and all this. So, um, but that was really hard because I never had any visitors. I literally didn't have any family coming to see me. I mean, my auntie Doc came to see me once, which was really nice of her, but I didn't want her to come and see me again because I didn't want people to be upset seeing me in the state that I was in. And you know, I was up to my eyes in morphine and all this, and I was just enjoying the buzz, really. <laughs> I was just fucking lying there mm-hmm. off my tits all mm-hmm. the time. And every time I wanted some more drugs, I'd just press this button and this nurse turned up and injected this thing into my drip and I was like floating off again it was yeah. that's sad George a 12 year old kid in the hospital alone. yeah it was sad it was it was but to be honest I was quite happy to be on my own because my mum was there in the in, in the first stages she was there for the first couple of months and there was a place called Marathon House where parents could stay so basically, because her and my stepdad were like, you know, alkies and fucking pissed and fighting all the time or whatever, she didn't come to see me. 
she came and stayed in this marathon house place and she used to go out and get pissed at the pub with the other mums every night. And like, oh, my poor son George, you're all buying the fucking drinks and all this lot, you know what I mean? So in the end, the nurses, the doctors come in one day and they just said, how do you feel about your mum being here? And I said, I fucking hate her, I don't want her here. Tell her to fuck off. And then the doctors made her move out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. I think she's just using it more of a convenience thing, do you know what I mean? When did you go to the hospital? What, did, what age were you, 14, 15? Yeah, yeah, I went in on June the 14th, 1984, and uh, yeah, I, I finished all I finished all my main treatment a couple of years after, so, I, you know, I'd be in for like six months, and then I'd be out for a couple of weeks, and I'd be back in for another four months, and out for a couple of weeks, but I mean, when it first started, generally, yeah, it was a couple of years just intensive all, all the time. Do you still get treatment for it or anything? Do you still get, have yeah. to do check-ups? Yeah, still get, still get, um, still have to have releases done and all that. I mean, now I'm getting a bit of a fat bastard. <laughs> I think my skin's stretching a bit yeah. more. I have to have a couple of bit more, but mm-hmm. yeah, it gets all sort of tight here and all that sort of stuff. So I have to have all them released and whatever. So you nearly died then at twelve. What yeah, was it? What was it? I was in a bad way. What it was two hundred and fifty thousand volts? <laughs> Fucking hell! Have you ever touched the plug? Have you ever touched yeah, the plug? I get a shot when I open the car door and I shake yeah. myself. <laughs> yeah, well, I tell you what, I'll, I'll never forget that feeling. It was like I, I, was a hair that sticking up. Were you yeah, smoking? Me hair was, me hair was stuck up. I'm smoking like fuck. I was smouldering when I went into the hospital. I was still smouldering. Yeah, that's scary. Because what happens is that. Where my burns are is where mm-hmm. my clothes were. So the, the electric's that powerful, it travels up your body and sets your clothes on fire. So, but um, I remember when it happened clear as day. Uh, my cousin David, um, he was on the bottom of this train, I was on the top of this train, grabbed hold of this thing, and then it was literally, all I remember, it was like being on a spaceship and someone's opened the door and gone, right, fuck off, and booted me out, and I'm just flying through space, like, hold on, where the fuck am I? Mm-hmm. And that's what it was like, it was mad. And then I woke up and I was on the I was on the ground and um, sort of like a starfish and all the grass around me was on fire <laughs> and our David was looking yeah. over going fucking hell drop me some piss on you yeah. and I went piss on me if you fucking piss on me I'll pull you fucking cock off don't piss on me and I'm like and then it, and then it just went all a bit tits up from there I was I was awake for three days when I went into intensive care is that all that electricity going through your yeah, body it's just the shock. When your body goes into shock, shock's a very funny mm-hmm. thing. Especially with the burn marks. But fair play, man, for kicking on. And it's never really held you back because you're known as the paparazzi guy. You've seen a lot of your videos and stuff. The UK's how, number one paparazzi. Yeah, the UK's number one on the UK's number one podcast, bro. Eh? <laughs> but how did you get into the, the photography side of things? Was um, that always a dream or a passion? Uh. N- I don't know. I've always been interested in like being successful. As a result of my childhood, I've always wanted to be really successful. I've always wanted to have loads of money, have loads of businesses, and do really well. And and bring you know, I've kids myself, and bring them up and give them the the lifestyle that I I never had. Um, you know, never hit me children or anything like whatever. So. I've just always been looking for things that, you know, I'd try to set loads of businesses up, fucking car valet and building barbecues and all this shit when I was 16 and, you know, nothing ever worked. And then I saw this TV programme once about the paparazzi and I uh, saw these all th- these blokes running around with big cameras and all that, earning 10 grand, 15 grand. I thought, fucking hell, that's a good job. And there was a big fat bloke from Australia uh, with a Mohican in London called Darren Lyons, an Australian bloke. You must have known him because he, he was battering Kerry all the time. He I'm had photographers sure. all. Mm-hmm. Big fat bloke with a Mohican. 
He was on uh, Big Brother with his sewn in. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. He's a right wanker. So I phoned up. He had a big company, Big Pictures. So I phoned up and I said, uh, I want to work as a paparazzi. And they're like, oh, yeah, thanks for ringing by. And just put the phone down. So I thought, oh, fucking, this TV show's been on. No one's, you know, everyone's probably ringing up. So I thought, oh, fuck it. So I just jumped on a train to London. So I went to London and uh, I got over to their offices. And I went to their offices and I just waited outside. And I waited for this Darren Lyons to come in. And he walked in. And as he walked in, I held the door open behind him. So he walked in, so I walked in behind him. What's it? He got in the lift. So I got in the lift with him. And he goes, all right, mate, how are you doing? I went, yeah, I'm all right. How are you doing? All right. And he says, yeah, yeah. He said, who you come to see? I said, I've come to see you. And he went, have you got an appointment? I went, no. I said, uh, he said, what have you come to see me for? I said, I want to be a paparazzi. He said, oh, mate, you need to send your CV in or send your fucking details in. I'm fucking busy. Da, 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 da. I said, listen, I've just got on a train all the way from Manchester. I've come to see you and I'm going to fucking see you whether you like it or not. And he said, so what's so special about you then? So I said, I'm Wayne Rooney's best mate. And he went, right, fucking two coffees in here. And that was it. And then we went in the office. So just kind of blagged your way in. Yeah, so we went in and I said, uh, he said, how do you know Wayne? And I said, oh, he lives near me. I said, yeah, I fucking talk to him all the time and all this and blah, blah, blah. And I'd get loads of pictures. I know where he is and all this, blah, whatever. And then, um, and then about 20 minutes later, I walked out with a fucking four grand camera and 22 grand a year salary. <laughs> and I, so I got just back on the train. Up. I got back on the train. I didn't even know how to use the fucking camera, mm-hmm. and I'd never met Wayne Rooney. You done that? So the, I the, thought, the, is it Mooney Rooney? Rooney Mooney? Yeah, the Rooney Mooney. That's one of my most famous. Is that when you had your ass out walking by Colleen Rooney? And yeah, how did that come about? I just whipped my pants down. <laughs> <laughs> how hard? But, is- but basically, when you're doing these pictures. What you've got to do is you've got to come up with something that no one's got. Get some think outside the box. So every night it was at the World Cup in Ger- I think it was Germany, and we we all were all over in Germany. And all the paparazzi, they were all doing the players at their hotel. And this was in the early days when the money was mega. It was mega dough. So I thought to myself, what the fuck? Why am I here with all the footballers? I'm going to go to the hotel where all the wives are and see what all them are up to, because they're the ones that, that sell in the magazines. I mean, all right, the footballers sell in the papers, but the women sell in the magazines, and the magazines used to pay loads of money. So I went down to the hotel, booked into the same hotel as them, and uh, got chatting to a few people, and finding out you know, when they were going to the nightclubs and all this, that and the other. So I used to follow them, just take all the pictures, send them all in, made loads and loads of dough. And then... One night, there was another photographer turned up from another agency. Um, and I thought, all right, there's two of us here now, so we're not going to get any exclusive stuff. So I said, listen, we need to work together and keep everything exclusive. We can still sell it for a fortune. And we just come up with some ideas. So there was one that we come up with. And uh, this young lad was outside the hotel and the players used to come back to this hotel to see the missuses every three or four days. They were allowed in for an hour. So one of these lads outside, it was Matt, it was, it, it just loved Rio Ferdinand. So I was trying to think of something to do with Rio Ferdinand. So I said to the kid's dad, I said, listen, I'll sort it out. I'll get Rio to do an autograph for him and all this, blah, blah, blah. I said, but your son needs to do something for me. And there was this joke shop down the road and they sold these artificial shits. Right, so it's a big long shite. So I went into this little factory down the road, got them to drill a hole in it, and stuck a pen up in inside this shit. 
So I've got this little, little kid and he's got his pad or whatever. So, uh, so I says, right, it, it'll be dead funny. Rio will laugh his head off. You'll love this. But I'll definitely get you an autograph and a photo. So I give this kid this artificial shit and this pad. And he was outside the hotel. And when the team bus turned up, taking a few pictures, Rio got off. And he's walking off and I said, Rio, Rio. I said, there's a young lad down there. He said, he's only six. I said, he's been waiting for fucking four hours for your autograph. Just sign his autograph for him. And Rio goes, yeah, yeah, all right. So he walks over. So I said to this lad, just give him the pad and give him that. So he gave him the pad, give him this thing. And he signed his autograph. And then Rio looked at this thing. And he's like, fuck's that? Give it him back. Walked in. So I snapped the picture, sent it into Fleet Street. And I captioned it, Rio Turdinand. What's the most you've made for? Like, what's the most you can make for exclusive photos? Well, it depends. I mean, some pictures. I mean, I mean, not so much now because it's all gone online. The papers have like lost all the circulation and all the rest of it. But some pictures in the older days, you get thirty grand. That's unbelievable, though, isn't it? You could get go go back to the early late nineties. You could get seven eight grand for Charlotte Church going to Tesco's with Gavin Henson doing a bit of shopping. Is that why some photographers are ruthless because the money can be made in it? In them days they were, yeah. I mean, you'd have people hiding in wheelie bins, hiding in people's gardens, hiding in the fucking sheds, because I chasing know, them down yeah, the road. Because I know you went to try and get Prince Harry and Prince William and did the, the royal family, people put you in a van and put a gun to your head? It was, um, it was MI5, well, I assume it was MI5. They don't really introduce <laughs> themselves, you know what I mean? I was, uh, that was in uh, Tetbury in Gloucestershire. And, uh, yeah, basically, I've turned up, and they were playing polo. So I've got this gas fan, and the gas fan's I cut an hole out the side of it, literally with a grinder, so you cut an hole inside of the van. So I could go inside the van and shoot pictures outside it. And um, so I've turned up, and I've got a sign on the side, can you smell gas, Ringo 800, treble 5, treble 1, because that's like a normal gas company, you know what I mean? So I've turned up, and there's no way of getting in. So I just drove in, drove up to the counter, uh, drove up to the, the main entrance, and uh, they said, have you got a pass? And I went, no. And they went, uh, well, you can't come in. I said, all right, then. Well, if you don't want any fucking gas bottles for the roast dog, it's up to you. Fuck it. See you later. So I've gone to reverse, and the guy's gone, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. What, what are you doing? I said, I'm bringing a couple of gas bottles for the hog tent or whatever. And uh, they went, oh, right, okay, yeah, yeah, hold on. Right, there's a guy coming through with some gas bottles for the tent. So they waved me through. So they waved me through, so I drove up, there's police everywhere. I mean, you know, Prince Harry and Prince William and all that are there, so, you know, it's proper fucking guns and shit, you know what I mean? So I drove up to this tent, got out, and uh, just went up to the bloke at the tent, like, all right, mate, how's it going? You all right? What time's the ogro starting? Just talking shit to him, so they could see me talking to him. And then got back in the van or whatever. And then I drove round the back. And as I drove round the back, I saw a bit of grass and thought, the plane over there, I'll, I'll pull up here. So I pulled up on the grass facing um, where the pitch was. So I'm in the back of the camp, in the back of the uh, van. And I've moved my little sign from the outside. I've got my camera ready to do them and all this. And uh, nothing's happening. I thought, oh, fucking. Anyway, I fell asleep in the back of the van. And then about however long later, there's a bang on the back of the van. And uh, they're going, right, um, X-ray 564 um, TFP or whatever on the radio. And I'm like, that's my reg number. What's going on here? They're checking my van out. And uh, so it's obviously special banks checking my van out. So I've opened the back of the van. And as I've opened the back of the van, there's about fucking, there's about 30 ponies all 
all round me van. And where I'd parked up, that's where they were bringing all the ponies to for the polo match. And they were like, what are you doing here? I went, oh, I'm really sorry. I parked in the wrong place. I've been driving for hours. I was just having a kip in the back of the van. I'm really sorry. And they were like, right, okay, you need to go back up. You know, you need to go out to the bank. So I went up, went to the bank car park, and they were trying to see me out. So as they see me out, I blagged, me, I, I blagged it staying in. So I basically stayed in there. And um, and when Harry and William come out, I was like mixed in with the crowd and everything. And I was just taking loads of pictures. And I had got near the tent, inside the tent where they were. And I got some really good pictures of Harry making a cup of coffee and all this sort of shit. And, um, and that was it. And then I was walking across this bit of grass, walked past this car. And the next thing, fucking bag goes over my head and I'm dragged into the back of this van. And I've got in there and I'm like, there's a fucking guy there with a gun, right? Police officers, a couple of police officers. There's a couple of guys in plain clothes. And uh, one of them goes, uh, hello, Mr. Bambi. And I, I was like, oh, hello. <laughs> like, what, what do you say? Do you know what I mean? And he went, we just thought we'd bring you into our little van just to let you know that we want you to go back into your shitty little van and get on the M5 and head south and you're going to have a police escort to the next junction and if you come anywhere near Tetbury in the next 48 hours, your life's not going to be worth living. Do you understand? And I was like, yeah. And then they took me out of the van and I, I walked down towards my van and literally there must have been about 10 or 12 guys all plain clothes, not walking next to me, but sort of circling me as I was walking to make sure I got back in the van. And then I got back in the van, drove off, and as I drove off, there's a car in front of me, a car behind me and all this. And I got onto the M5 and uh, started heading south. And then I got a couple of junctions down, and a couple of junctions down, these two big black unmarked cars went past me. And as I went past the next junction, they drove past and just went like that. <laughs> out, out the window, uh, and I just carried on driving and went home. Did they take your camera off you? No. The film or no, anything? No, they didn't. But when I got home... Um, about half an hour after being at home I sat there with the missus and there was a knock on the door I've opened the door and there was two coppers at the door and I went, oh you're alright and they said can we come in and I said yeah and they said oh we don't want to alarm you but there's 12 of us and they all came in the house and the missus is on the couch I'm like what the fuck's going on they came in, they took all my cameras all my laptops, iPads, computers memory cards, the whole fucking lot and uh, they said to the missus, we can't tell you why we arrested him, we can't tell you why we arrested him, blah, blah, blah. The Anti-Terrorism Act and all this sort of shit, they start quoting. Then they took me down to the police station. It was like 8 o'clock at night and uh, locked me up in a cell. And um, and about 4 o'clock in the morning, they came in with a pasty and a coffee and said, uh, we're back in 10 minutes. 10 minutes later, they came back and said, uh, oh, it's all been a big misunderstanding. We shouldn't have arrested you. We're really sorry. We're going to drop you back home now. We're not going to be taking any charges against you. We're going to bring all your stuff home. And I went back home and they'd wiped all my camera cards, all my pictures of William and Harry and deleted the whole fucking lot. Was that just to make sure that you weren't a terrorist or gathering information to maybe? Well, possibly, but it was also... They might have been probably scared. Maybe I got some pictures that I shouldn't have had or something or whatever. But, I mean, you're dealing with the establishment. Do yeah. you know what I mean? It's like, this is one thing that I've always, it's always made me, like, think about things a bit different. I used to go down and do David Cameron when he was on holiday in Cornwall. And I remember the first time I got some pictures of David Cameron. And literally, he's got, like, loads of armed guards with him. They've all got guns. They're all in, like, bulletproof motors and all the rest of it. 
and uh, and I got on the beach when he's in the water and fired him right in front of everyone else. He didn't see I had a camera. We had it edging under my towel. I got a load of pictures of him, and the next day they were in all the papers. And there was that one. Do you remember uh, Ken Bigley when he'd been decapitated? Yeah. It was a front-page picture. It was like, Ken Bigley's been de- decapitated. Where the fuck's David Cameron on holiday surfing? So they were in the front page. But then the next day, when the paper come out, I got like about, I'm not joking, about 600 friend requests off all these people with all this Asian writing and stuff. Um, you know, um, Muslim, um, people from Muslim backgrounds with all this writing, I want to be your friend and, you know, all the blo- and I, I like shit myself because obviously he was on the number one list for Cameron, isn't he? The ISIS, because all that shit was going on at the minute. So I had to go down to the police station and say, look, I've had all these friend requests. And uh, they sent someone down and they took all the requests and everything off my phone and all the information for, like, intel gathering or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that was it. But I could have fucking put a bullet in his head. Yeah, you could have been anybody. That just should, Does that not show you how weak the intelligence can be then from some of these guards and stuff, if you're sneaking in just with a gas man? Yeah, I reckon the, I reckon the security for, for David Cameron and people like that was so bad... I could have taken him out 10 times. Mm-hmm. There was times when I was parked in the car park where he goes for a swim in the back of my van with a camera through a hole cut in the side of my van that I've shot loads of pictures of him. If I'd have had a gun and I was a sniper, I could have taken him out. Yeah. What about, so if you get a good photo, say like Prince Harry, Prince William, how, how does it go about? Do you auction it to the highest bidder? Well, it depends what you've got. If you've got a really good set of pictures, I, I mean, I know if I've got a really good set of pictures. And because I've been doing it for so long and I work for myself, I have a good relationship with uh, most of the editors that deal with all the pictures and stuff. So I contact the editors direct and say, right, you know, I've got my guys at the Sun. I just go, right, I've got this. I know they want it. I'm like, how much are you going to give me? And we agree a price. And if the price isn't good enough, I'll just say, if you don't fucking pay me what I want, I'm going somewhere else. And they go, right, we'll pay you what you want then. If it's something that they really want, and that's it. But sometimes you shoot a really good set of pictures and think, oh, I want to get five, ten grand for these. And then you send them in and the paper's like, yeah, we're not interested. And you're like, what? So then you go to the next paper, then the next paper. And then other times you shoot a set of pictures and you think, oh, fucking waste of time they are. You'll send them in and they start a bidding more for them. Just you, you never know what's going on in their heads at the moment or what stories they're doing or... Yeah, what's popular. Yeah. How do you... What's the biggest story you've went undercover to get photos of anyone? Um, that's a good question. I've... I'm very proud of this fact. I know a lot of people will think this is a load of bollocks. You know, you get all these paedophile hunters and all yeah. this. And everyone says, oh, they shouldn't be getting involved, they shouldn't be doing this and blah, blah. Well, it's nothing to do with that, but it's quite similar. I've I've been the only photographer that's managed to get certain people. Do you remember Shannon Matthews? No. The young girl that was kidnapped by her mum. Her mum was called Karen Matthews, and they Not hid sure. her under the bed. Not sure. Fucking have you, have you got a TV at <laughs> You must have heard of Karen Matthews. I only watch more stuff. <laughs> I bet you do. I bet you do and all. So... Uh, Karen Matthews lived in Dewsbury and she had a little daughter called Shannon. And basically, they made out that the daughter had gone missing and there was this massive nationwide hunt for her and everyone was looking for her. And it turned out like two months later that she was being uh, held captive by her um, brother-in-law and they were going to keep the ransom money. So she was like the UK's most hated... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was like the UK's most Mm -hmm. hated figure. 
So she went to prison. When she came out of prison, um, she did like eight years or whatever. And when she came out of prison, all the pictures, all the papers want the very first pictures of her coming out. But the thing is, when they come out of prison, they take them to a safe house. And to find someone in a safe house is nigh on impossible. I mean, you've got to know what you do. You've got to know people. So when she came out, I was the first one to find her and get the pictures. And then on top of that, there was another woman called Vanessa George, who was the, the female paedophile that had abused all these kids at a nursery in Plymouth. She was like public enemy number one. And she got let out after seven years. And I found her and got all the pictures of her. And a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you saw it in the sun, it was last week, I think. You know this May Reed Philpot? Yeah. Her and her husband, uh, Mick Philpot, they set fire to the house and killed the six kids. She got released out of prison and they'd been after her for two months and uh, they couldn't get any pictures of her. And I turned up and smashed her within three days and had a full page of her in the sun. So that's, I don't do it for money anymore. I've, I'm quite well established in my life. I've got businesses, I've got, you know, my life's all unky dory I don't need to do this business anymore. So I sort of pick and choose the jobs that I want to do now. Do you get a flow from that, George? Yeah, it's like fishing. Do you ever fear for your life? Oh, fuck me, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, if fuck you're getting guns put to your head. Yeah, I've feared yeah. for my life a few times. I mm-hmm. mean, cert- see, the problem is, you know yourself, you've met loads of celebrities, I've met loads of celebrities, and what happens is, like, you know, someone like Gaza or someone like that, you know, a lot of these celebrities are really nice people, but the danger is the people around them. Because what happens is, people want to be the friend, they want to be seen to be looking after them and protecting them and da-da-da-da-da. So... You know, if you do something wrong with a certain celebrity, their mates are like, I'm going to fucking hunt you, Dan. I'm going to kidnap your fucking kids. I'm going to rape your wife. I'm going to fucking shoot you. I'm going to do it. And you're just like, fuck, you know. You get it all the time. You've just got to go yeah. in one what, Is one. that the kind of threats you've had? Oh, all the time. When I did my TV show, uh, uh, I got a TV show with Channel 4, Confessions of the Paparazzi. And I was, uh, I was the only paparazzi that they wanted on it. I was the number one paparazzi in the UK. I'd had nearly 400 front pages. And um, and I like to think I'm a bit of a character or whatever. So they got in touch and said, we want to do a TV show with you. And, uh, and I was like, oh, I'm not really that bothered, to be honest. And then they phoned me back and I was like, how much? <laughs> Fuck <laughs> it, right, let's do it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so we did that. And it came out and we did like, um, we did a main one on the channel. It was like a main one-hour programme. And then we did like seven other episodes. And... Uh, it's really weird when you're, when you're on primetime TV with your own show because you watch it on the telly and then you finish and you go to bed and then you wake up in the morning and you're like, fucking hell. You've got like 600 messages and you've got like 2,000 friend requests and you've got messages off this, message off, everything from fuck me, you're a legend to I'm going to fucking, I'm going to rape your wife and all this and it's just like, trying to get your head around it all and you're like, what's going on? Do you know what I mean? How do you feel with the shoe on the other foot? Did paparazzi ever try and get you once you started to get into the limelight? Uh, yeah, I had a couple of photographers turned up at the house taking photographs How of me. How did you feel? I just came out of the house and I went, here, I'll fucking take a few photos of me and what, what do you want me to do? Because you can understand I'll just yeah, try to make a crust. Went in the shop, bought a paper, mm-hmm. took a few pictures, fucked off, went back home, that was it, happy yeah. days. Because I had Gaz on and I think oh, you, he's I'll, a legend. Yeah, on you go. You I'll tell you something about Gaza. Yeah. 
There's only two rules that I've got, right? Gaz is a Gaz is a hero of mine. Yeah, same. There's only Legend. two only two rules I've ever had, and they were never ever take a picture of someone with the kids, which I've never done, and never ever take a picture of someone that's ill. And that's why I've never done Gaza. The Sun and all the other papers, you know, they've all said, go and get Gaza. And I'm like, I wouldn't fucking touch yeah, you. Yeah, because the press killed people because I had Gaza on last week and that's what he says. Like, they used to leave bottles, bottles of whiskey at his outside his house. And he used to put it in the bin. He used to say, oh, he's back in the drink and stuff. That can be sad because the press, I believe, can kill people. And if you're struggling with mental health, it can push you over the edge. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I did, I did something really bad with Richard and Judy once. One of the magazines was saying Judy was an alcoholic and I knew she wasn't. So I got one of my mates to give her a bottle of red wine at one of the book signings and took a picture of her and all this. And it was on all the front pages. Judy's got a drink problem out of control and all this. But it's different league with Gaza because Gaza is an alcoholic and he has got a problem. And he's been working really hard to sort all his shit out or whatever. But I actually know people that were putting bottles of vodka outside his front door and ringing the bell and waiting for him to come out and pick it up. And, you know, hopefully go in and drink the bottle and come out absolutely plastered to get another bottle and they could get loads of... I mean, that is just shit to me. Yeah. Did you ever target their best friends, family members? Because you see family members selling stories all the time. Did you know who was weak around high-class celebrities to target them? Because money talks. Yeah, it does. Money does talk. And I've got a lot of friends. See, the difference is I'm a photojournalist and reporters are print journalists. So what happens is photos we do whatever photos we do right a lot of these people um they think they've got loads of close friends around them they most of them haven't got anybody they can trust you know we have friends sisters brothers aunties uncles one celebrity a, an a-lister a fucking mum used to ring me to tell me what she was doing that's how bad it is they can't trust anybody but the reporters they're the sort of ones that go around looking in the bins, looking at the letters that they've put in the bin and speaking to the sisters and the brothers and this and d digging in and getting copies of bank accounts and stuff. That's all, that's all different, different yeah. worlds of mine. So now we're going to your dad, Charlie Bronson, Britain's most punished prisoner. 46 years he's been in prison. I think he's been free just over 100 days. Yeah. Is this where the relationship started when your dad seen you on the TV? How did that come about, George? Uh, he was watching this programme on Channel 4, Confessions of the Paparazzi, and uh, and he saw me named George Bambi, and at the time, I was like 46, um, and he was like, George Bambi? It's a pretty unusual name, isn't it? And who I thought was my real dad, who was on my birth certificate, his name was George Bambi. And I went to see... Uh, Paula got in touch with me, uh, Paula Salvador, who my old man married, and said, Charles Bronson wants to see you in prison. So I was like, Charles Bronson wants to see me in prison? Did fuck you think up. you'd done something wrong? I, I don't know what, I don't know what, <laughs> but my arse was tweaking a bit. I was like, fucking hell, what does he want? And um, so that was it. So I, I was sort of a mixture of excitement, a, a bit puzzled, blah, blah, blah. So... Um, so he says he wanted me to come and see him. It took like six to eight months to get on the approved list to get visit to, to be able to visit him because he's such high category. He's classed as in the top eight most dangerous prisoners in the country. Well, he is the most dangerous prisoner in the country. So you go through this six to eight month rigmarole of getting in and uh, the prison service got in touch with me and I filled the forms in and all that and I was approved in 48 hours. And I was like, okay, that's a bit weird. So I went to see him and I went to see me Paula the first time and I walked in 
and it's just like where was it? I thought oh, it was at Wakefield in the cage he was in in Wakefield a few years ago. And I walked in and uh, they took me through all these metal detectors, all these machines, fucking eye retina scans, fingerprint scans, through all these doors. You know, they did everything apart from crawl up my arse to see what <laughs> what I had on me. I mean, literally, it is like Heathrow Airport times 100, you know what I mean? Which you can understand. So anyway, I was shitting myself. I had to walk all through the prison, all past all the wings and all that outside, all the excise yards. And in Wakefield, it's a prison inside the prison, on the other side of the prison. And uh, it's a special unit, the CSC unit, the Close um, close Supervision Centre. So I went in, and they've opened this fucking massive gate, and I'm like shitting myself. I can hear these people, I can hear Charlie going, what the fuck is going on? Fucking five past fucking two, and he's not here. What the fuck? I'm going to fucking knock someone out in a minute. He's giving it all this. I was like, fucking hell. So as I walked through this gate, there was an exercise yard on the left. And I looked over, and there's this massive bloke about seven foot. Honestly, he was massive, beard and all that. Like, looked really empty in his eyes. Anyway, they took me down this thing and then turned left. And there's a cage there. And uh, we went into this room, and there's all these bars and shit. And, uh, and Charlie was in there, and he was stood upside down, doing a headstand, singing, Please release me, <laughs> let me go. And I was like... So I've walked in, I thought, fucking hell, this is a bit bizarre. So we walked in, and he's finished off doing his song, and when he's finished, he's just done a backflip, jumped up, and gone, hello, Georgie, so nice to meet you. He put his hands through the bar and shook my hands, and I thought, fucking hell, do I grab his hand? What happens if he pulls me in? What, what, what do I do? Because you sort of panic, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, it is, that's what it's like, that's what it's like. So when we went in, the door shut behind me, and as the door shut behind me, there's a massive, big, round, bulletproof glass thing on the door. So he's pulled me in, so we're talking away. And uh, and then he's just just got chatting and all this, and he says, um, and he told me your dad was a very good friend of mine, and I was like, how do you know me dad? And he went George Bambi, and on my birth certificate it says George Bambi, and his occupation was turf accountant. He ran a bookmakers, and basically, cut a long story short. What happened was with the visits, he said to me that when um, my dad was running this bookmaker's office, he owed a load of gangsters some money and he was in the shit. So um, because he owed him this money, him and Charlie, they arranged for Charlie to go in and rob the post office, uh, rob the, the bookies. So Charlie went in with a fucking shooter and said, right, give me all your money, got away with like three or four grand and then him and George Bambi shared the money, right? Who I thought was my real dad. George Bambi disappeared over to Spain with his money and left my mum, wasn't with her anymore. Then what happened was, just after that, Charlie obviously had a bit of a thing going with my mum. He met her at some club in Ellesmere Port. She got pregnant. And, uh, and then obviously... Few months after whatever happened happened, George Bambi came back from Spain. Come back from Spain, and my mum's pregnant, and she's like, "We're having a baby." And at the time, Charlie was in loads of trouble. He was always fucking in trouble with the police, doing robberies and all this shit. So she thought she'd have a better life with George Bambi. So she told him that I was his son. They were pregnant, and that was it. 
And then he moved back in with her. They were together for about six or seven months. And then Charlie ended up getting sent to prison for seven years. And George Bambi ended up fucking off. And she was on her own anyway. So how was that experience then coming from, basically, when you're 12 years old, growing up yourself, not really knowing who your real dad was, to then having the life that you've had as a photographer, your own TV show, for then Charlie Bronson to send a message out and say, he's your dad, what the fuck were you thinking? I don't know, it was all a bit fucking mad, to be honest, but, I mean, I, I brought up, I've been brought up all my life looking after myself and, and being in kids' homes and, and all the rest of it. I've never really had any parents, never really bothered about them, never been asked, and, uh, and that was it. And then when I started meeting up with my dad... We, we, you know, we started talking, and then you know, he started sending, he started sending me photographs of, like, my mum and my auntie, and you know, uh, and friends, and telling me stories, and saying, "Oh, do you remember this scar on the back of your mum's hand?" You know, she had a scar on the back of her hand there, and apparently she was in a pub one night, and she was pissed, and she wanted someone to drink, and she had a bet with someone, she couldn't put a cigar out on the back of her hand for a fiver. And she wanted some money for beer, so they bet her. So she put this cigar out in the background and she got a big scar in the background. No one would have ever known about that. There's loads of other different things that he, that he told me that he didn't know about, that, that I didn't know about, that I've since checked with other family members that have confirmed um, what was going on. So, yeah, so that was it. And then we there was loads of shit i've had loads of i've had loads of fucking trolls on the internet and loads of people saying he's not your dad you're full of shit you're fucking into pr you do stuff with the papers it's all a load of bullshit it's a marketing exercise it's a pr scam and all this shit it's not i'm not gonna go around telling everyone my dad's fucking charles bronson mm-hmm. hey speak of the devil he's ringing <laughs> shall i answer it yeah i'm gonna give him a bell uh, have a chat hello <laughs> I have eaten too much porridge. Hello, son. Yeah, I'm all right, Dad. How are you doing? All right. What are you doing? All good. Yeah, I'm just uh, I'm just sitting down having a chat with uh, with the mate James. James. Oh, yeah. James. Is he all right? Yeah, he's all right. Yeah, he's a nice lad. He knows. Uh, he's had a few chats with Paul Ferris and um, Dave that. Courtney and all that lot. Who else? Vic Dark. Hey. Do you know Vic Dark? Yeah, Vicky Dark. I was in progress with Vicky. Oh, was you? Yeah, East Londoner from Kennington. Oh yeah, we were just we were just talking then about how we um how I found out I was your son. Yeah, well, I was just saying to James, I don't really listen to any of this shit off anyone. We've had our DNA test done through the prison service. We know the cracks. So I'm not. I don't listen to that shit, as you know. Well, the facts are on the table, right? There's no disputing that I was with your mum, right? You weren't the only one. <laughs> no disputing, right? We know she was a raving lunatic, but I'm like a magnet. I always magnetise lunatics to me, anyway. Mm. Right. So that, that's not disputed. Second of all, all you've got to do is look at a photo of you and a photo of me. We've got the same nose, the same eye sockets, the same jawline. Any blood 
Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, we're just having a little chat about it, that's all. Yeah, there's a lot of muppets out there, mate, that just want to cause problems all the time. Well, all I'll say to them muppets are, come and see me later, because I could be out at the end of this year. I know, I was just telling him about all that legal stuff. We've got this uh, this appeal we've just won, the court yeah, case. Yeah, fantastic. We've just won the High Court. I've got a public parole hearing. I'm just waiting for the date. We're going to smash it, mate. Yeah. Because for the last 50 years, uh, paroles have been held behind closed doors. Now, I've just got a new law. They've now got to be a public. So I can have the media in, the public in. There's no more sweeping my case under the mat. I know, I've got all my speech, I've done all my speech with the lawyers and that to say in court for you to stand up and tell them about all the good stuff you do. Hey, did you? Um, I've not. I've not told James yet. Do you? Um, you realise that that record that we brought out? You're number one in Cyprus, number three in Sweden, and number twenty nine in the British charts. <laughs> did you see that on the paper on Sunday? Fucking. Oh, no, I can't believe it. I re- you know that nasty Nick. Yeah. Now I was only having a laugh with him. You oh, everyone could see that. I told him, I said, hey, you better stand down, son. I'm, I've just smashed me way into the music world. Well, what I'm going to do with Nasty Nick, I'm going to offer him to come on a CD and me and him will do a duo, The Righteous Brothers. Yeah, that'll be good, won't it? Yeah, it'll be brilliant. So, Maz is here. We've, we've, come up to, uh, we've come up to Glasgow to see Rodney. Oh, it's horrible, isn't it? I fucking cried my eyes out all day yesterday. So, uh, yeah, so James, he rang up while I was in Glasgow to come and have a chat with him, so it worked out worked out all right, actually. Oh, well, that's good. How'd you get on with the doctor? Did you go and see the doctor? Yeah, hey, get on this. <laughs> I've got to see the doctors. Now, you know me, I don't like doctors. I don't get involved in doctors. You don't like anyone? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. Yeah, I bet he would, yeah. Hey, 
Oh my god! I'll tell you what. Yeah, Jimmy's a good lad. Jimmy's been to see uh, Ronnie and Reggie, hasn't he? Yeah, years ago, he, he went to Parkhurst to see my old mate Joe Parler. Yeah, oh, I tell you who messaged me the other day. Ma- Maureen Flanagan. Oh, she's been having people messaging her saying, you don't know the craze and all this and giving her loads of grief. And she said about when he was on the roof at Broadmoor, yeah. she she walked past you with um, Ronnie and Reggie's mum, didn't she, and Charlie? Yeah, she, now, what, what, I was up on the roof. It would have been about 1981. Oh, that was the she first... Ro- Right. So you took the roof off in So what do you reckon now about getting out? Do you reckon we've got a good chance now? We've got this public parole here in? Yeah, well, this legal team we've got are brilliant, aren't they? Yeah, well, we're a team, aren't we? So what? What are you? Um... Well, that's yourself. And that's myself. I've told... The I've been behaving for the last few years, there's no reason why I can't get out. Yeah, I've told you that. Now, if I don't get out this year, it's almost certainly I'll be getting out next year, early next year. Yeah, well, look how, look how far you've come the last three years. I mean, you, you're just a complete changed man. Like I, was just, I was saying to James, you know, we've been teaching you all about remorse and re- instead of regretting stuff... Because you regret taking that guy hostage because you got time in prison. Now you've totally changed, and now you've got remorse, and it, and, and you're actually sitting there thinking, well, that poor bastard that I fucking took hostage, everything he's had to deal with all his life, and it's making you realise, you know, the the error of your ways, and realising what you've put people through, rather than the consequences you've had to put up with being locked up. And that's what. And that's what the parole people want to wear. They want to wear that you're remorseful and you understand what you've done to these people. See, so, the truth is, the average screw prison officer who opens my door, they'll release me tomorrow because they know I'm no danger to the public. They all say that when I come and visit you. They'll say that. I'm not a murderer, I'm not a rapist, you know, I'm not, I could live next door to anyone and they wouldn't know I'm here. Yeah. You're in the charts. You're not just a songwriter. You're a fucking hit. You're a hit um, pop artist. I'm a walking fucking genius. <laughs> <laughs> right. So when you get out, yeah. what are you gonna do? 
I mean, we've talked about this loads, haven't we? Uh, you know, don't tell anyone. Uh, what, don't tell anyone where you're going to go or anything. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to do my art, make a living with my art, I'm going to do a lot for charities, I'm going to do my training. And work at the crime museum. I work, I've got a job at the crime museum, so there's everything waiting for me out there, everything. Yeah. I, I, I'm, the reason I'm not going to London or Luton or a big town, I'm not going to say where I'm going, but I'm going somewhere where there's not a lot of people, yeah. And, you know, I'm just going to enjoy my life. Can't wait. You deserve it now. You've been out of trouble for so long. I'm excited now. I can actually... I'm closer now to getting out than I've been in 40 years. And do you know what's really good now? Yeah. It's like, like I've said to you, uh, over the last few years, this is the first time in your life where you've actually... You're not sat there as a lost cause. You you, you 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 actually know you've got something to work forward to now, to actually get out. You've got a goal, and you know that if you smack one of the guards or hit someone, that you that's the last nail in your coffin. You're never going to get out. Do you know what? I've come to that stage in my life where I'm now able to walk away. Yeah. I mean, that's massive for you, isn't it? Have you, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not far off 70 there, and I'd like to think when I'm 70, it's a couple of years' time, I should be out there enjoying what's left of my life. Have you got any regrets? Regrets? Have you got any regrets uh, at all? Have I got any... I have got one regret, just one. I missed the Strange Ways Riot by nine days. <laughs> Hey, I went, uh, you organised for me to go and meet Alan Lord, do you remember, in Manchester? Yeah. He's a lovely fella, isn't he? Yeah, he's been on. Uh, top geezer, top yeah. Yeah, we sent him. Lovely, we sent him some. We sent him some money to help fix the roof in the gym, didn't we? Yeah, got him sold a bit of art and uh, helped him out. Yeah, he's well, a. Yes, will always help me, mate. Sir. He's a lovely bloke. Have you? Um, What's Vicky Dog doing there? Yeah, Vic's doing good. I don't know Vicky Dog. Yeah, he's doing well. Well, if you bump into him, just give him my respects because it was an absolute pleasure to do a bit of porridge with that man. An absolute pleasure to do a bit of porridge. Hey, I was telling, I was saying about there's no porridge in prison anymore. You have to have Rice Krispies now, don't you? Well, I'm ashamed to have to say this, but it's now 2021, and I'm buying my own fucking porridge. 
It's outrageous, isn't it? I was walking around an exercise yard 40 years ago, and I said to someone, well, do you know what? In 2021, I'll be buying the porridge. They would have looked at me and said, Charlie, you need to go back to Broadmoor, mate. I was just saying as well, do you remember that? Remember when I came to see you just before COVID? Yeah. And... Uh, I think it was at Waddell. And they took me in the wrong room and put me in with that Michael Adabawaji. Yeah, they put me in with Michael Adabawaji, didn't they? Unbelievable. I... What about when you was up in Wakefield uh, and Frankly, you saw them monsters? Oh, do you know what? I forgot to tell him about that. Um, when I met um, Robert Maudsley. When I met Bob Maudsley. When you said go to the window and say hello to Bob, so I put my head up at the window... <laughs> I went, all right, Bob, and he had his face about an inch from me. I went, all right, Bob, nice to meet you. And he, he looked at me, and he, he opened his mouth, smiled with his teeth, and I turned round, and you was in your cage pissing yourself. And I was like, I was like, what are you laughing at? And you went, do you know who that was? And I went, no. And you went, it's a fucking cannibal. Oh, he's gone. He's gone. Mm. Yeah, that was class. Man. Oh, that's good. Didn't yeah, ring him, that wasn't was it? Class, perfect timing. What, what was it like then going <sighs> through the process? Did you know much about your dad before he gave you the call? Uh, well, it's quite interesting. It's a good question, that, because when someone says to you, do you want to go meet Charles Bronson? The first thing your arse does, it starts fucking tweaking like a blood orange. And you're like, fucking hell, Charles Bronson? Why would I want to go and see him? He's a fucking raving nutcase. He's a lunatic. Because, <laughs> you know, the mo mm. he's always labelled in the papers as the most violent prisoner, the most um, volatile... You know, he takes hostages, ties people up, beats the shit out. But you've seen the film. I mean, it, you know, every time, you know, all the screws say he's the hardest bloke that they've ever come across in, the, in their fucking lives. And even when 12 of them go into a room, they shit themselves. When he's 12 of them all tooled up. So, I mean, what's it not to be scared about? I absolutely fucking shit myself. <laughs> but now, now I've been and seen him so many times I've seen him loads of times you know I used to go and see him every two weeks I've visited him at Wakefield I visited him at Franklin I visited him at Woodhill you know I've sat there with him and fucking Ian Huntley's been sat over there like dressed as a bird with all makeup on and a fucking blonde wig in a dress and I'm, I've seen some crazy shit while I've been visiting him I've met Robert Maudsley you know I've seen fucking Roy Whiting and Peter Sutcliffe and all these it's just it's a completely different world it's a yeah. different world it's a world that we're just not used to how does Charlie get on with these people do they fucking hate them they won't let him anywhere near them because he would Ian Huntley you know I mean I, I say Charlie's not a violent person anymore and he's not he's totally changed he's so chilled out and so I mean you won't want to fuck with him because he'd rip your legs off, you know. He'd walk into a pub in Glasgow with ten of the hardest blokes you want and rip sh fucking shreds out. It'd be like someone plucking a load of turkeys. You'd just see loads of feathers coming out the doors. He's hard as fuck. I would not want to cross him. Because I, I, I think one of the paedophiles, one of his stories, he nearly killed a paedophile. He strangled them to death. Yeah, that was in Broadmoor, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. And he strangled him that hard. He actually, he, he actually, he's told me his story a few times. He, his dad went to visit him. And he said to his dad, oh, can I have that tie? And his dad gave him a silk tie. And uh, he gave him the tie and he had the, he kept the tie. And then when he waited, he was sat in the, in the room in Broadmoor. And um, you see it in the film, Bronson. He goes up behind him and puts the tie around his neck and pulls it. 
and he pulled it and pulled it and pulled it, and then the guards come and rushed him off and pulled him off. In real life, the reason why that guy survived was he pulled the tie that hard that he actually snapped the tie in half. And that's the fucking strength of the guy. Yeah. How was it being for you for being that man, the confessions of the paparazzi's to then Charlie Bronson, the most punished president in Britain, saying he's your dad? Was that hard for people to think it was a, a, a scam or a con to then... When you're trying to grow a relationship with them, you've had the DNA tests, you've had the saliva tests, you've had hair tests, and both have come back to say that 99.9% that he's your dad. How did you deal with that? Not really having a dad growing up to then Charlie Bronson being your dad. It must have been mad for you. Yeah, the, the, the thing that I found hardest about it was, at the time, I didn't realise, there was all these Facebook groups and all these groups of all these people that fucking worship me old man and they go online, they've got all these groups about him, Charles Bronson, this, Charles Bronson, that. And when he married Paula, they were all like, oh, Paula, fucking slag, she just wants to be with him for fucking fame and all that, the fucking, she's had more cock than a farmhouse, really, all this shit they were saying, really horrible, nasty things. Paula was a really lovely person. She was. She was. A, she had a heart of gold. She was one of the nicest people I've ever met. She was mentally fucked in the head. She had a lot of issues. She had a lot of problems with, like, drugs, um, prescription drugs and all the rest of it. But as a person, you couldn't want to meet a nicer person. She was a loyal friend. She'd do anything for anybody. But she was taking all these barrages of, like, trolls and insults and people saying the most horrible things about her, which I believe contributed to her dying. I, I, I believe when she when she died, it, you know, she, she kept ringing me up all the time saying she was going to take an overdose, she was going to kill herself, she was going to end her life. and all. It, was, it was just awful. But um, what happens with Charlie? People get close to him. And there was one guy in particular, a guy called Rod Harrison... He was so close to Charlie, he was his mate, he organised this, he organised that. He's, oh, Charlie's my mate, I've known Charlie for... I've known Charlie 44 years through the bare-knuckle boxing, I've known him for years, he's been my mate all my life and all this. And then what had happened was, he, Charlie'd be sending him all his artwork, he'd be selling all his artwork and making loads of money off it and giving Charlie a bit of money and a bit of money there and whatever, topping his canteen up and everything. And then what happened was... It got to the stage where anything that happened with Charlie had to go through this fucking guy, right? He, he, he just... He was like the head of this Bronson empire and he, he just controlled everything. So in my relationship as his son, I went to see him one day and I said, listen, I've got this fucking guy telling me what to do, telling me what not to do and all the rest of it. I said, I ain't fucking listening to anybody. I'm not listening to any shit, any fucking groups or any whatever... Right, we've got a relationship. And if you want to have a relationship with me, then we have a relationship. And I'm not fucking answering to anybody. And that's it. And he went, well, you shouldn't be fucking answering to anyone. I said, so what about this fucking idiot then? He reckons, you know, he's known you for 50 years. He's done this. He's done... He went, I've known him for about five years. He started writing to me a few years ago, asking me for signed photos and blah, blah, blah. So I started sending him a few things. He started selling him. Then he'd send me a few quid and we'd been friends and that's how we built up our friendship. And he's like, I haven't fucking known him for all them years. It's a load of bollocks. But he's... And then what happened was he started this big campaign with all these other fucking idiots saying... He doesn't know, he's not Charlie's son. They've not had a DNA test done. They've not done this, they've not done that. He said something about, I said that I'd had a hair tested when I went to Wakefield. 
basically, when all this come out, I was getting loads of fucking hassle off um, the press and the papers and the telly and all the rest of it, saying about you being Charles Bronson's son. How do you know you're his son? I, I knew he was my dad. I knew from what he told me was going on and all the rest of it. So me, stupidly, I just sort of said, well, I went to see him and he gave me a hair from his moustache and I took it home and then he rang me and said, get that tested. And I said, well, I got it tested and that was it. Worst thing I ever fucking did. Because then you got all these twats going, you can't have these hairs tested, you can't have this, you can't have that, blah, blah. So anyway, got in touch with the prison service and anybody can get in touch with the prison service and, and speak to them and confirm this. I got in touch with them and said, right, I believe my dad is Michael Peterson, known to you as Charles Bronson. Charles put, Charlie put an application in, and we had a DNA test done at the prison in Wakefield by the prison service, an official DNA. And it was done by them, by a doctor that came on a visit and swabbed us both individually, sent them off, and the DNA came back 99.9%. That's it. I'm, I don't speak about it to anyone else. I don't get involved. If all these fucking idiots want to say whatever they want to say, then let them crack on. I'm not. I'm not really asked. Who was that for you? The day you found out he was his dad. Are you emotional. Uh, well, I already knew he was my dad, so I mean, it wasn't much of a shock, but it's just that final. It's a fuck you to people as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's like... Yeah, but the thing is, why do I have to explain my life to anybody? It's because probably the life you led before it, though. Because of the blagging you did do, the jipping you under... For the outside, people looking in, the shit that you've done, dressing up, kidding you're the gas man to take photos of the prince, to then the most punished prisoner in Britain, the most well-known prisoner that you've become his son. So people are going to go, wait a minute, something's not right there. Yeah, yeah. But it's not like, you know... I mean, when I was brought up as a kid... I was brought up to fucking blag and do whatever I did to get food. I mean, in my bedroom, I didn't fucking eat for days on end. There was times where I had to nick, like, three pieces of bread and hide them under my bed and make them last fucking three days. And, like, I used to cut the crust off and roll the bread up and dip it in water until it got really fucking soggy in a cup and then it made, like, a big lump of stuff that I could eat to fucking feed myself. I used to blag myself uh, my way through life just, just to survive. And that's how it went on with all the paparazzi stuff that I did. But, you know... As far as Charlie goes, it, you know, it's not the sort of stuff... You know, the prison service aren't going to wear someone just turning up and going, oh, yeah, that's your son, yeah, you know. And when I go in and on my pass, it says, George Bambi Salvador, son, visiting Charles Bronson. You know, they've got all the DNA results there. They've got all my information on the public records, on the files. The Ministry of Justice have got everything. And they knew I was his son anyway, because when I went for the original um, protocol and documentation, all the rest of the shit, to go and visit him, they cleared me within 48 hours. Has he got other kids, Charlie? Two yeah, other I've, sons? Got a, I've got a half-brother called Michael, uh, Michael Peterson. Uh, he's not well at the minute. He's in a clinic in uh, up north. He, he, he's had he's had a lot of like, really bad mental health problems and drug problems and stuff. That's a shame, man. And he's in a clinic at the minute, but he's a couple of years older than me. When was the last time your dad was in like Lunnebin, like Broadmoor, stuff like that? Uh, he's not been in Broadmoor for about twenty years. So a long time. Yeah, he he says um, no. It's probably more than that. Thirty years ago, I think it was like eighty five, eighty six that he left Broadmoor. But like he always says now, he's the only person, he's the only prisoner in the British penal system at the moment that's got a certificate off Broadmoor to say that he's sane. He's been in the free psychiatric hospitals 
and oh, Rampton, Ashworth. Yeah, Ashworth, that's the free in it in Broadmoor. Yeah, Broadmoor. Oh, no, I'm not sure if he's been in Ashworth. Yeah, he has. Oh, has it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's definitely been in Rampton. So did, def- they, did they nearly kill him in Broadmoor? They injected him. Oh, yeah, they used to just beat the fucking. See, the thing is, the prison service are a fucking disgrace because there's all this mental health stuff and there's all these criminals. And then you've got criminals with mental health problems. You, you know, you've got the criminally insane and you've got the insane. You've got people in there, in Broadmoor, that are insane, that sit there, have a shite in their hand and eat it. And the fucking, they're insane, right? You've got people in there that murdered like 10 kids and they're criminally insane. And what happens is, when they get someone in the prison system that they just can't control... They just call. They do what's just called nutting them off. That's what Charlie says. They nut them off and go right Broadmoor because when they send them to Broadmoor, when they can't control them, basically they used to pin them down like twelve guys at a time, and they'd inject them in their ass with a liquid cosh, and it would paralyze them for three days. I mean, they literally could not move apart from the mouth spit coming out the mouth. But one of the interesting things is Broadmoor's classed as a hospital. It, it, it is. It's a hospital, isn't it? So why are all the staff that work at Broadmoor all paid by the prison service? They're all prison officers. So it's not a fucking hospital. Yeah, so it's a prison. Doctors and nurses, it's just people... It's a prison. Yeah, dumbing your mind down to quiet, yeah. quiet you down. It's a prison where they can just inject you, lock you in a fucking room and not have to worry about it. Does you. your dad know this, the stories that he's done as mad though? Like, who was the two Iraqi guys he took hostage and he got to tickle his feet and stuff and he wanted a helicopter? Yeah, that was there was three of them. Yeah, yeah. He just he read in the paper one morning these Iraqi hostages had uh, hijacked a plane from Baghdad or Tehran or whatever, landed at uh, an airport in London, and they'd been arrested. And uh, I think it was Belmarsh, wasn't it? Yeah, he was in Belmarsh. So they put him in Belmarsh, and he was like, uh, "Oh right, yeah, you want to fucking take some British people <laughs> hostage, do you? Right, you fuckers, I'll fucking take you hostage." They so must he, have been thinking, what the fuck have we got ourselves into? Charlie Bronze is sitting there saying, tickle my feet. <laughs> so basically, the three of them were in the cell, and uh, and he just walked in, and he went, all right, boys, shut the door. And he went, right, you fucking three are hostages of me now. And that was it. And uh, he tied one of them up and put them under the bed. <laughs> I'm laughing because there, there was <laughs> three of them and there wasn't enough room for three of them in the cell so he fucking he put one of them under the bed <laughs> and uh, the other one he put a noose round his neck with a rope on it and uh, and the other one he said right you fucking tickle my feet and he just lay there and made him tickle his feet and I think he had him for three days didn't he? <laughs> yeah I think he's wanting a helicopter that as well as well yeah yeah he wanted um, yeah I think that's what what did he ask for he wanted a helicopter an AK-47. And a sandwich. And some jam sandwiches, yeah. yeah. And I not- said to him, fucking... A helicopter, an AK-47 and some jam sandwiches. And he went, yeah, I was hungry. <laughs> like, What's the, the maddest story he's ever told you? Oh, he said he wanted a helicopter to get him to, to take him to Mexico. Mm-hmm. I want a fucking helicopter to take him to mm-hmm. Mexico. You need a petrol tank on it about five <laughs> times the size of a fucking helicopter yeah. to get him to Mexico. How, uh, what's the maddest story he's ever told you that you've been shocked? Uh, oh... He's told me some stories that have really, really badly shocked me. I mean, this is what I'm saying about all this mental health stuff. A lot of the stuff that he's seen, it's... Trauma. Yeah, it's fucking trauma. Trauma. I'm convinced he's got PTSD. Um, Oh, he's done all sorts of stuff. I mean, fucking hell. There was one guy once that... um, 
I think he had a mop. There was a mop and a brush on the wing. And he was with Ronnie and Reggie in Parkhurst. And, uh, oh no, no, I'll tell you another story. This is fucking Tell brilliant. me that one as well, though. Yeah. Well, I might as well tell you now. So he had the gold mop and the gold thing, and he painted them gold. And he said to everyone, right, this is my mop and this is my bucket. If anyone wants to use it, you can use it as long as you put it back. And they were like, yeah, all right, Charlie. Anyway, this one guy kept borrowing the mop bucket and, uh, and didn't bring it back. And he went into his cell one day and he went, listen, I fucking told you once, you borrowed me mop bucket, you borrowed me mop, and you've not brought it back, I'm fucking warning you, you do it again, and there's going to be trouble. And he's like, yeah, yeah, all right, all right, yeah, yeah, it's only a fucking mop and a bucket. And he's like, well, it's my fucking mop and it's my bucket. Because you, you don't have many things in prison. So, anyway, a couple of days later, he's used his mop bucket, gone off, and he's not brought it back. So Charlie's gone into uh, Ronnie or Reggie's cell and said, right, I've fucking had enough of this twat. I've fucking, I've had enough of it. I'm, uh, I'm going to do him. So he walks into his cell and he had a tomato sauce bottle and he smashed the tomato sauce bottle and he just kept fucking stabbing him with it and stabbing him and stabbing him and stabbing him and just basically cut him to bits. And um, I mean, just an absolute moment of psychoticness and I, and I think a culmination of all the trauma that he's gone through and all the rest of it, where he's just lost the plot. And and he did that. And that's when they nutted him off and sent him to, to Broadmoor. So he's turned up at Broadmoor and they're sat there at the table and they're having some dinner. And uh, was, it, was it... See, I don't follow all the gangster stuff. Mm-hmm. I've never been involved in the gangster stuff. But, you know, I'm not interested. I'm interested in helping my dad and that's it. Was it um, Ronnie that was at Broadmoor? Yeah. Yeah. So he sat there with Ronnie and um, they're at the table and this guy came up to him and he went, Oi! To my dad, he goes, Oi! I want a word with you. Charlie went, What? I'm watching fucking Top of the Pops. What do you want? What do you want? He goes, I want a fucking word with you. I want a... And he went, What? He went, Right. What I want is, I want you to take me in the fucking recess room and I want you to punch fuck out of me. And Charlie's gone, you what? You want me to do what? He's gone, I want you to take me to the research room. I want you to punch fuck out of me. And Charlie's gone, I ain't fucking doing that. I'm watching Top of the Box now. Fuck off and leave me alone. Right? So he's gone off. Anyway, Ronnie's there reading the paper and he's turned round to me dad and he's gone, Charlie, he won't fucking leave you alone until you beat fuck out of him. He says, you'll have to do it. Honestly, he won't leave you alone. So Charlie's like, fucking hell. Anyway, about 10 minutes later, he comes up and he goes, right, I fucking mean it. I want you to kick the fuck out of me. He says, I want you to kick the fuck out of me and I want you to do it now. And Charlie's gone, right, fucking get down the recess. I'll be there in a minute. <laughs> so he's gone down in the recess. So Charlie's walked in and uh, he's walked in. He's gone, right. He's had a look around. He's not around. He's gone, right, what do you want then? A couple of fucking body shots? Or he said, no, I want you to fucking just steam into me. So he's just steamed into him and just knocked the absolute living shit out of him. And then walked back and sat down with Ronnie. And uh, Ronnie's gone, did you uh, give him a good idea? He went, oh, fucking right. <laughs> yeah. He said, I've given him a good idea, all right. So, uh, so that was it. So a couple of days later, he sat there having his dinner or what have, and this guy came up to him again and he says, uh, I want you to give me another good idea. So I fucking really enjoyed that. He went, you fucking what? 
He goes, yeah, I want you to give me another good eyes. And he went, fuck off, I'm not doing that again. You'll get me into trouble now, fuck off and leave me alone. And the guy goes, right. He says, I'll tell you something now. He said, I've got all these fucking cuts and scars on my face. If you don't take me down the back and give me a fucking good hiding, I'm going to get my social worker, I'm going to get my fucking nurse, I'm going to report you to the police, I'm going to have you done for assault, I'm going to have you fucking in banging trouble. Charlie went, right, get your fucking ass down that fucking recess. And then he went down and battered fucking Who was again. that? Just, like Just some fucking nutcase uh, in Broadmoor. What was the other story you were going to say there? Uh, oh, yeah, they sat there. Him and Ronnie were sat, used to sit on the same table having dinner. And there was this big, massive black fella and this little white fella. And uh, there's some butter on the table. And um, and they're having the dinner, just buttering the bread and all this. And this little white guy got this big lump of butter and put it on his thing. And the black guy next to him just picked up this knife, grabbed hold of his head and just stabbed him in the eye, like that, literally in his eye. And Charlie said it was one of the most traumatic things he's ever seen. He was like, fucking hell, what did you do that for? And he's like, he fucking took too much butter. And Charlie was like, he took too much butter and you've done that. So when your dad got prisoned, it was like seven years for robbery. Armed robbery, And then yeah. it was just constantly fighting, taking hostages, battering prison guards and all this shit. But in 2000, is that when he took the art teacher Hostage. Yeah, that was Phil Danielson. What was yeah. the real story about that? Uh, he just slagged his artwork off. I mean, Charlie, um, there's a, a a really good screw called Mick O'Hagan. Um, and, and one day, Charlie was in his cell and he was just up to his tether, nothing to do, fucking screaming out for, for, for some stimulation. I mean, if you lock someone in a cell for like 10 years and don't let them come out and all the rest of it, I mean, it's going to fuck you up mentally, isn't it? Mm. So this Mick O'Hagan went down one day and says, yeah, Charlie, here's a few pens and pencils and a bit of paper. See what you can do with that. And he started drawing pictures. And and it really helped him to rehabilitate himself, gave him loads of therapy, and he, he does all his artwork. And he does it all now. And, you know, and that's his outlet. That's what he does. And that's what gets him through the days. And this Phil Danielson, the art teacher, um, they were there doing all this art, and Charlie was doing some of his artwork. And uh, Phil Danielson said it was shit. He didn't like it. And Charlie thought, right, fuck you. So took him hostage. But I think the reason why he took him hostage was he was bored. And that sounds stupid. He took someone hostage and tortured them for three days because they were bored. But if you think about being locked in a cell for that amount of time, then he said to me, you'd do anything to be out yourself for three days. And and that's sad, that, isn't it? What's the longest he's been in solitary confinement for? Oh, he's been in solitary confinement for years without being let out. With being fed in, in Wakefield in the cage, it, there's a cell with a cage and you open the door. And as you open the door, it's literally a cage door. Like an animal? Yeah, and they literally open the door and fucking lob his thing under like a letterbox at the bottom of the door and just slide it in and shut the door. How did the screws treat Charlie? Well, I don't know how they treated him years ago. Um, I no, mean, from, from yeah. the story he's told me, from the stories he's told me, they used to beat the shit out of him. And also, don't forget, you know, Charles Bronson, it, it's not like he's not a big name in the prison system. He's probably the biggest name in the prison system. So if you get a group of screws that are sat there one night, eight or ten of them, and they're like a bit bored, they're like, oh, fuck it, should we go and batter Bronson? And, and, and they just open the door and steam in and 
smash the shit out of him. And then they go home to the wives, oh, yeah, we fucking battered that bronze. We give him a good hiding today. And that's what it was like in them days. Yeah. If someone, they had an argument with someone, they won't talk to him. They just go in and smash the fuck out of him, basically. So Charlie Bronson was the actor, the American actor he got his name from, and then he changed it to Salvador. Was he an artist? Salvador Dali, yeah. Mm. He, he, um, he bases his art and, uh, and his icon is Salvador Dali, the artist. That's why I changed names to Charles. He Salt. makes money from his art. What's he made, most he's ever made from a painting? Uh, oh, some of his paintings have sold for 20 grand. Have they? Yeah. That's phenomenal. It is phenomenal, but his artwork is phenomenal. It's yeah. brilliant. Have you seen it? Yeah. Some I'll of it? You, yeah, yeah. I'll get you a piece. Yeah, definitely. I'll get, you, I'll get you your own piece. Yeah, that'd be amazing. I'll tell you something now. He does more for charity than anybody knows about. And, and the problem is... With all the stories in the paper, I do a lot of the newspaper stuff and the media stuff. And if you've noticed over the last 12 months, most of it's all been about... Like, we had something, big things in the papers, front page last week in the Sunday Star. And it was all about him doing a number one hit record and, uh, and making money for this charity, Calm, uh, which is a mental health charity. There's loads for charity. But what we've done is, in the past, all these knobheads that have been hanging around him have all been, like, doing little things in the paper. Oh, Charlie's fucking... Hit one of the screws or whatever, you know, get a couple of hundred quid, and they're not asked about what, um, you know, what repercussions that's had with my dad. So what I've done is, with my experience with the media, and I, I've got a lot of contacts and I've got quite a lot of power within certain um, certain papers. I've built up relationships with people that have not been about making loads of money. They've been about the content of what's gone into the papers. And a lot, most of the stories that come out now are like, oh, Charlie's doing really well with his artwork. He's got his parole coming up. He's doing this. He's doing his artwork. He's raising money for this. He's raising money for that. And like I spoke to him a few months ago, and uh, I said, how do you fancy uh, making a record? He went, I'm fucking making a record. How can I fucking make a record? I'm stuck in here. I went, well, you can record, write a, write a song. I'll record the lyrics, and then we'll get a band involved. And we got this band in Las Vegas, uh, in Cyprus, called Lost Vegas. And it was done through a very good friend of mine, Ashley Sims. Um, and I got all the lyrics, got everything recorded with Ash and this guy, Chris Topless. Mixed it all together. We paid a good few hundred quid to get it all mixed and all done and all that. And, uh, and it was released last week, and it gone straight in at number one in Cyprus. Number three in Sweden and number thirty-one in the UK charts. Why Cyprus? Um, because I don't know. It's mad, isn't it? Do you think that that can change people's perception? Like, if you're hearing the stories, that's what people know Charlie as is the most punished president in Britain, but he's also known as being the most violent. So, see if you're sitting in the parole boards, you're maybe going to Charlie's coming up for parole that day, and there's a negative story that day. They've done any paper, or he's done this and done that. That would have major effects. So, you're trying to change. And put the positive spin on it. Well, I'm trying to, I'm trying to build up the the the, the real Charlie because you mentioned Charles. I, I went to see Anne Widdicombe not so long ago. The MP, she lived down near us in Devon. I took my missus round. I just went round and knocked on the door. And I went, "All right, Anne, I'm local to Devon or whatever, and with my wife." So, is there any chance we can have a have a chat? And she went, "Yeah, yeah." She invited me into the house. Fair play to her. So we sat in the living room, made us a coffee, come in, and she went, "Right, what can I help you with?" And I said, "Well, I've I've come to see you." I said because um, Charles. I said, "You know Charles." Bronson the prisoner and she went yeah and I said Charlie's my dad and the fucking look on her face she went grey she's like alright oh, thinking hey, well, just let into my house I said listen no need to be worried about talking to us whatever we've just come around for a chat you know with nice people same as Charlie I said when you were the prison minister 
All I want to try and find out is when we when you were the because we're trying to find out what we can do with the parole and all the rest to give him the best chance to get out. So it's like when you were the prison minister, why didn't you let Charlie out of prison? And she turned around to me and said, "Because he was a murderer." So I went, "It was a murderer." Yeah, I said, "Right, yeah, it was a murderer." I said, "Well, let me ask you a question." I said, "Can you remember how many people he killed?" And she turned around and she went, well, I don't know from the top of my head. I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it was like, I'd have to look it up, but I think it was like nine or 12 people that he murdered. And I turned around to her and I said, he's never murdered anybody. He's never hurt a kid. He's never raped a woman or hurt a woman. And he's never murdered anybody. And she went, well, I, I, I'm sure he has. I said, well, he hasn't. I said, but if you were the Minister of Justice at the time, and you were the one to sign that bit of paper to let him out. If you're sitting here thinking he's killed fucking 12 people, it's no wonder you didn't fucking let him out. Yeah. Do you think he's ever been scared to come out because he's been so institutionalised that it can be no. a bit of fear to no. come out? I mean, obviously, we've had loads of conversations about this, and I've spoken to loads of psychologists and people that we've got on board, mental health people and all this. And he is going to be institutionalised. There's, there's no doubt about it. I was in hospital for two years and I didn't want to leave. He's been in prison for 46 years and it's all he knows. But, like he keeps saying to me, I can't be institutionalised because I hate prison. So, you know, Harry Roberts that killed the three coppers that got let out, he'd been in for, for years and years and years. He's come out and rehabilitated himself. Yeah. How did the film with Tom Hardy come about? Uh, basically, the, the company got in touch, Vertigo Films, and just said... It's a fucking great story and we want to do it. Great actor. Is it true that when he used to rub butter and stuff on himself, is that all true? Oh, he still does that now, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when he, get, when he gets a bit, bit, bit bored, he did that. I think the last time he did that was a couple of years ago. I think he was in Wakefield about three years ago. And, uh, and he'd been saving up his butter, saving it up in a little bag, and then he puts it in his boxes under his ball sack, his boxes on, and he goes out with his shorts and his T-shirt on. He gets in the yard to do all his dips and all that. And uh, and these twelve of them used to take him out with all riot shields and sticks and everything. And uh, and once he lock him in his cage in his exercise yard, he has his own little cage. With two of them wait outside, and then they sit there talking while Charlie's doing all his bits or whatever. And uh, yeah, he just gets the butter out, rubs it all over himself, and then he turns round and his eyes comes down and he just goes, "Right, get your fucking mates." And they look at him and go, "What?" And he's going, get your fucking mates, you're going to need them. And he's covered in butter. And then 12 <laughs> of them go in and he's like, right, fuck it. And then he just goes for it. How's his relationship with Tom Hardy now? Um, well, I don't think he spoke to Tom for a couple of years. But it's like anything with Charlie, you know. Uh, I mean, Tom was really nice to him because obviously he wanted to do the film when he went to see him and learn all about him and all the rest of it. But since Bronson came out, the prison service have banned Tom from visiting him. Why is that? Well, because he just brought a film out, Bronson. It's a fucking Hollywood blockbuster. And it's all over the place. Netflix and everyone knows mm -hmm. it. And they don't want prisoners being portrayed into being big movie uh, stars. Is your dad get that. many celebrities still in contact with him? Uh, yeah, loads of them. He's got loads of pals. You know, Barbara Windsor used to go and visit him. Ray Winston's a mate of his. You know, Danny Dyer. Lo loads of them, yeah. Going forward for the future then, you're trying to get your dad out. What would be the plans to be for his life when when he gets out? Well, we've already got him a caravan in, down in uh, down in the southwest. And uh, it's about 80 yards from the beach. It's got a chippy on site. It's got a gym on site. It's a private place, so not everyone can just walk in. So I'll give him a bit of privacy. 
Uh, one of his rooms has been turned into an art studio. He's going to get a couple of dogs, Ronnie and Reg. Got a barbecue outside. We've got the crime museum in Torquay that we own. And uh, all his artworks in there and loads of old stuff from all his friends from the craze and, and all the rest of it. And all that's in the museum. That's open all the time. He wants to go and work in there. And then people can come and visit the museum and talk to him. And How do you think he'll handle that? Because everybody will want a piece of his attention, but I'd imagine you'd guide them into yeah, well, kind of keeping them away from that shit. Yeah, it's just all about like sort of like putting a bit of a barrier around him, and because you know what it's going to be like. You know when he comes out. I mean, I've had phone calls. ITV will give you half a million quid for the first interview when he comes out. You know, we want him to do this. We want him to fight that. He wants to do. He wants to do a talk. I'm just like he's not fucking interested in any of that. He's not interested in money. He doesn't need money. It, he's already got a few quid. He's got enough to live on for the rest of his life so anything that he wants to do it will because it, it will be because he wants to do it and it's something that he wants to do and nine times out of ten it might not even be about the money it might be about the opportunity do you think he can live a, a happy healthy life when he gets out i hope so yeah i mean you know there's there's been a lot of sadness getting to know him um in what way just listening to the stories and, you know, everyone goes, oh, he's a fucking violent monster, he's an animal, he's this, he's that, he's other. But I listen to a lot of the stories of things that he's actually been through as well and things that he's had to deal with. And I think the the, the system's failed him big time, properly, properly failed him. He's not had any mental health care, he's not had any psychologists. I mean, all right, he's been offered them, but... You know, he's, ne- he's never had any He just basically, he's just been locked away and the key just hung up on the side. Just rotting away, just a number. Just rotting away, yeah. Do you think it's therapy for him when he talks to you? When it's more deep instead of the people who know Charlie Bronson as the prisoner and the shit that he's done instead of understanding why he became the man that he became in prison? Well, you've just seen from, you know, a conversation we've just had, you know, we, when when we talk to each other and we spend time on the phone... You know, he's only allowed to talk in 15-minute blocks, so he rings me three or four times a night. So every day we spend an hour talking to each other. And we don't talk about, you know, these stories. I mean, the other day, he rang me up and went, fucking hell, he's been fucking kicked off today. One of the guys next door's fucking slashed two of the guards up and cut him to bits and all that. And uh, and I was like, oh, fucking hell. He's like, well, you know, they must have asked for it. And, and like, I said, well, listen, hold on a minute. I talk to him the way I want to talk to him and I'm not scared to talk to him in an educational way to make him realise. And I'm like, hold on a minute. These two guards that have had the faces slashed and all the rest of it by this inmate, do you not think that them two guards have got a fucking wife and family to go home to and they're doing a job and they're getting paid to look after you in the prison. And so when I come and visit you, they're all really respectful to me and they look after me. They always ask me more, right, make sure I've got a cup of tea, look after me. They're always really polite and respectful for you. And he's like, yeah, yeah, but you don't know how it is in prison. You don't know how it works in here. It's a different life. I said, yeah, it might be a different life. I said, but I don't give a fuck who they are. No one deserves to go to work and come home and end up in hospital with like the face slashed and shit like that. And he's like, yeah, no, you know, I've never thought about it like that. Because he's not used to that. He's just used to violence all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, over the last three years, I've been educating him so much about, about consequences of things and what is acceptable and what's not acceptable and what behaviour, you know, 
is right and what behaviour is wrong. And, you know, like it's Phil Danielson. Years ago, he's like, oh, fucking, I hate do I fucking regret doing that. I got a life sentence. If you ask him about it now, he'll be like, oh, I'm fucking, I'm so remorseful. That poor guy, I should not have done that to him. I can't believe what I've put him through. I've ruined his life. I've fucking made him fear to ever work again. I can't live with myself. And and that's the change. How strong is he? Because I know people say that he's strong. He's broke world records and stuff, is he not? Oh, fucking hell. Is he really, is he a powerful man? I've seen a picture man? of a cell door that he's fucking pulled open from the bottom and it's fucking bent up like you would open a baked bean tin. I can't imagine to tell you how strong he is. Is he still training every day now? Oh, he does a thousand press-ups every morning when he gets up and a thousand before he goes to bed at night. I, I, when I go and visit him, he does 100 press-ups. He does 90, he, he, I think his record is 96 press-ups in 30 seconds. And I, I'm just sat there with the screws and they're like, have you got a time of golf? And the governor goes, right, 30 seconds, ready, go. And he's like... <laughs> and, and he'll do 100 press-ups and then he'll just jump up and eat a fucking Magnum ice cream that yeah. I've got from the canteen and he won't even like be out of breath. What kind of food does he eat? Shit. Is that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, they all say, you know, it's great being in prison, you've got no rent or bills and you've got three square meals a day. In the morning, they chuck him a fucking plastic bag with a bun in it and a bit of cheese or something. Um, in the afternoon, they'll get some cold stuff in a packet and then at tea, they might get a pork chop, a bit of mashed potato and some peas or whatever. Has he ever says what he's missed most, being, out, being outside? Yeah, he misses like going to like a local cafe and having a proper English fry up and having a good dinner, having a pint of Guinness. And he always says like some of the happiest memories that he has is when he's getting transferred from one nick to the other. Because they put him in a van and fucking tie him up and chain him up in the back and he literally can't move. And he looks out the window and sees the cows in the fields and the sheep and... Fucking sad, isn't it? Yeah. Does it make you emotional leaving them after a visit? Yeah, makes me emotional all the time. I mean, makes me quite upset sometimes when I'm with him and I'm talking to him and he's telling me some of the stories and stuff. Because everyone sees this fucking Charles Bronson, fucking hard bastard, don't fuck with him, he's a fucking nutcase, he's a lunatic. He's a person. And when you talk to him and you get to know him like I've done, as his fucking son, and we sit there and we talk to each other and we hug each other and fucking puts his arm around me, he's got emotion and he's got feeling. And and he gets upset, and he gets, you know, and he's dead happy at the same time. But he's not got any regrets about his life. He he, he wouldn't change a thing, and he's uh, not not a lot else to say really. Yeah. So just before we finish up, brother, I've got to say hello to my little son, Lewis. Of course, shout out to Lewis. How are you, brother? Lewis. Yeah, your dad's played an absolute blinder the day with this interview. It's um, <laughs> this will do phenomenal, but. For coming on, mate, and telling your story, it's, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I really mean that. Can't wait to see your dad out. Fuck ITV and BBC, you know, the real interviewer is here, mate. I'll do it for free. I don't mind. Yeah, I don't yeah. <laughs> oh, it's been nice. Do you know what? It's not only been nice to talk to you as a person, but it's also been nice to have the opportunity to explain a little bit more in depth about what my old man's like, because he's not the monster that everyone portrays him to be. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If you were sat here with him now having a chat, you'd be like, just one of the guys down the pub. You know what I mean? Yeah, but you know yourself how the media can portray people. Yeah, it's fucking heartbreaking. Would you like to finish up on anything? What's your businesses, sorry, before... What's your businesses? Would you like to promote them or anything? No, no, no. I just No, no. I've got a a book out, um, which is called George's World, Mm -hmm. 
which is on Amazon. And uh, that's all about all my childhood. And it goes right up until the minute I met my dad. And then, uh, so that's called George's World. Uh, that's on Amazon. Um, and I've also had a film made about my life, and that's on Amazon Prime. You can get that on Amazon Prime, and it's uh, it's called Stepdad. And that's my whole childhood and stuff. I was one of the first people in the UK to prosecute my mum and stepdad. Takes a butter bottle fucking as well, man. You, you've been through the wars yourself, Georgie, and you've come through a lot of shit. And listen, I can't wait to see your old boy out and hopefully get to meet him one day. And But for coming on today, George, and telling your story, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Nice one, um, mate. Shout out to Rodney as well, who your friend is. Oh, mate, yeah, Rodney McMillan. I've, I've come up to Glasgow to see him. He's just been given palliative care. He's, um, he's in a really bad way. He's not got long. And uh, hopefully, whatever we can do, we can try and do, but... It's been a really fucking sad few days, to be honest. Nah, God bless you, George. And again, All right, nice thank one, you. James. Take care, mate. Thanks a lot. You can also watch my podcast on my YouTube channel. The link is in the bio if you'd like to subscribe. You can follow me on my social media platforms to see who my next guest is. Follow me on Facebook at James English 11, Twitter, James English 0, Instagram, James English 2. You can also download these podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Podcast Network.